Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. As you already know by now, uh, tomorrow is a very, very important day in history. It is October 31 tomorrow, and while our country is celebrating something known as Halloween, we in the church love and celebrate something much more marvelous. It was October 31 in 1517, 499 years ago tomorrow, that one of the most monumental events in church history took place. It was the Reformation. It was on that day that Martin Luther, as you know, nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that ignited what has now become known as the Reformation. Very significant event, probably one of the most significant events in history since the inception of the church in Acts chapter 2. So significant was it that it spanned two centuries, the 1500s and 1600s, and yet the seeds of the Protestant Reformation were sown well before that, even in the 1300s and 1400s through men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, Huss who himself went to the the stake and was burned at the stake for some of the very things that we love and cherish today. It was not located simply in Luther's responsibilities. There were many others who were participants in this marvelous event, men like Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, John Knox, John Bunyan, and even a woman, Lady Jane Grey. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and many others were involved in this monumental event. So significant was it that it encompassed many countries. It began in Germany, it spread to Switzerland, it spread to France, eventually crossing the English Channel to Britain and Scotland and then over to the New World. Incredible event. And it marked incredible changes on the whole landscape of human history. It affected everything politically, it affected things socially, it affected things educationally, it affected things economically. It had a massive and a profound impact upon the world when it occurred. Undoubtedly, though, the greatest impact of the Reformation occurred in the church. It was prior to this that really there was no concept of church membership. And by the way, today we're going to welcome six people into our church membership, very excited to do that and welcome these dear saints into our church family. Before the Protestant Reformation, none of that existed, nor did congregational singing, nor did the preaching of the Word of God, nor did the Bible readings in the language of the people take place in Scripture. This did not take place. Many of the things that we celebrate, that we take for granted, that are so consistently a part of our church today was not even present prior to this event. So it was the Reformers who really returned the the preaching of the Word of God back to the centrality in the church. It was the Reformers who turned back the church to the public reading of Scripture. It was the Reformers who brought back congregational singing. It was the Reformers who brought back an understanding of the priesthood of every believer. Without a doubt, though, The single greatest impact of the Reformation was on the recovery of the gospel, the true gospel, the one, right, pure, unadulterated, biblical gospel. And that, friends, is the heart and the soul of the Reformation. And in a sense, what it did is it answered the question, how can I be saved? How can you be saved? How can anyone be saved? And that, my friends, is the single most important question you could ever ask and answer. And we better get that right. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have a relationship with God? How can I approach the God of the universe and have a relationship with Him, not only now, but into eternity? That's not an insignificant question. And so it was the reference that truly brought about the changes by which a recovery of the true gospel took place. Prior to that, it was confused. Prior to that, Rome uh, added a number of different things to the gospel, and there are a number of hoops and and obstacles and, and things that tended to obscure the pure and simple gospel. It was Luther who said that the church's true gospel, the true treasure, is the gospel. 
It was Luther who understand that the greatest treasure within the church is not its rites and its ceremonies and its formal practices and all of the the, uh, sacramentalism that goes around in the church. That's not the church's greatest treasure. The greatest treasure is the gospel itself. And so what, what emerged from this monumental event were five watchwords, five phrases, five terms that really sum up and form the bedrock of all that we believe about the gospel. They're the five sole. I think we have a slide here. We can put them back up for you so you can be reminded of what they are. They are sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Those five watchwords really define and mark the essence of the Reformation. And you'll know just by looking at those terms that the word sola itself is the word alone or only in Latin. And so you can understand what these terms mean. Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, salvation is by faith alone. Solus Christus, salvation is through Christ alone. Sola scriptura, it's according to the scriptures alone. And soli deo gloria, salvation is for the glory of God alone. These really define and capture the core beliefs of Reformed faith. These really capture the essence and the foundation of what the true gospel really is. And here at Maranatha, we are in a five-year study of these wonderful phrases. We do one a year. We've done three. We'll do one today. We'll do one a year from now. And so let me just quickly remind you where, where we've been in walking through these five soli. It was three years ago that we looked at the first one, sola scriptura. And we said that sola scriptura essentially says that the, it's the word of God alone that defines and grounds our theology and our practice and nothing else. No traditions, no, no other church rituals, no other pope, no other anything associated with any type of state church defines what we do. It is the Word of God alone. Nothing else, nothing more. The Scriptures alone define what we believe and how we practice those beliefs and truly define the gospel. So it was the Reformers who wanted to see the Word of God in the hands of the people. And so they translated from the original languages the Word of God so that the people could read it. Tremendous. They preached sermons in the language of the people, and they sought to bring back every ounce and every practice of their church as grounded in the work and the truth of the gospel as defined in Scripture. Two years ago, we looked at solus Christus, solus Christus, which essentially says that salvation is in Christ alone, nothing else. And at that time, Rome, it wasn't that Rome didn't believe in Christ. Of course they believe in Christ. Christ is central to, to that theology. And yet what had happened was Christ had become lost in the midst of the rituals and the sacraments and, the, and all the other things that had been added to that. It was essentially a desecration of Christ. As Christ was lost in the priesthood and Christ was lost in the Mass, and Christ was lost in all these other things that were added to it. The Reformers came along and they said, no, salvation is only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. His blood, His righteousness, His atonement, His work at Calvary, salvation is through Christ alone. That's solus Christus. Last year we looked at sola fide. Salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. Again, Rome didn't deny faith. Rome has has a place for faith in their theology. And yet, at that time, the reformers came along and said, no, it's it's not simply faith, or it's not faith plus everything else you're going to add. It is simply by faith. It is solely by faith. It is through faith alone that anyone is brought into a saving relationship with Christ. This is known as justification by faith alone. And that right there is the core centerpiece of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. Next year, we're going to look at the final 
sola. It is soli deo gloria, and by God's providence and by God's grace, next year, October 31, 15, uh, 15, 17, 2017, I can do the math, is the 500th anniversary. And so we're going to celebrate the final sola on that date. What we're going to do this morning, though, is I want to take you through the fourth one. The fourth sola, sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone, entirely by grace alone, solely by grace alone, entirely, our entire work of salvation from beginning to end is by grace alone. And we want to concentrate this morning on the fact that man contributes absolutely nothing to salvation, zero, except sin. The only thing we bring to the table in our salvation, the only thing we contribute to the work of redemption in our life is our sin. That's it. There's nothing else we contribute to it. And that is the essence of sola gratia. It is by grace alone. It means that it's grace at the start. It's grace in the middle. It's grace at the end. It's grace unmixed. It's grace without addition. It's grace that allows no boasting. It's grace that allows no arrogance. It's grace that allows no confidence in our ability or our work or our accomplishment or any human merit. It is grace alone, period, by which anyone comes to saving grace. Spurgeon said it this way, he called it all of grace. He wrote a little book entitled All of Grace. And his whole point in that little book is to demonstrate that every facet and every feature of our redemption is solely and entirely a work of God from beginning to end. We call it sovereign grace. God in His sovereignty and in His grace draws sinners to Himself. So we need to understand this. We have to understand this. And then once we understand it, it is a marvelous thing to grasp as we realize that God did the entire work of redemption in and through us. There's a little song that says, a chorus, you've probably heard it before, mercy came running like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to the point of my need, when the sin that I carried was all I could see, and when I could not reach mercy, mercy came running to me. That's sola gratia. You didn't do anything. You didn't make one step towards God. You didn't move a finger towards God. You were on the bottom of the stream, your lungs filled with water. You were dead. And God, in His marvelous grace, did a work to you to redeem you, to resurrect you, to regenerate you, and that is the thrust of sola gratia. Your will was not free to move one ounce towards God. We need to define that because there are many today that still want to hang on to a free will. Well, you know, God, God took, part of the, took me part of the way, and then I responded the rest of the way in my faith. No, 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 no. That was the essence of the Reformation because this is the issue between Erasmus and Luther. And you remember that Erasmus took Luther to task on this very issue. And it is on this very issue that he attacked Luther's understanding of sin's impact upon the human will. And he says, yeah, it's kind of messed up, but it's not dead. And so therefore, we can still make progress towards God. We can still make choices towards God. We can respond to him in our own faith. And Luther wrote a little book called The Bondage of the Will. His best known work. And in that book, he demolished Erasmus's understanding of the fact that our will is still free, and he demonstrated from Scripture that our will is in bondage to our sin, and therefore we can make no progress towards God whatsoever. Listen to what he says, quote, God has surely promised His grace to the humble, that is, to those who mourn and despair over themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers. 
beyond his own counsels and efforts and will and works and depends absolutely on the will and the counsel and the pleasure and the work of another God alone. That's a direct quote from Bondage of the Will. He's exactly right. Salvation is utterly beyond our powers, our counsels, our efforts, our will, our works, and depends absolutely upon the will and the counsel and the pleasure of another, meaning God himself. Our wills are not free. You didn't choose God. Our wills are enslaved. Romans 9.16 says it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on the God who has mercy. Your will was not free to choose God. John 1 verse 13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if anyone's going to be saved, if you're here saved today, it's not because you made a good choice. It's not because you you decided to accept Jesus. It's not because you did something that that moved God's hand to, to convince you then, or to convince Him to save you. God did and does the entire work in redemption. Tremendous. That is the heart and the soul of sola gratia. Now, you need to understand that it's not that Rome never taught salvation by grace, they did. They taught salvation by grace, and sometimes we dichotomize this too much, and we say Protestants teach that salvation is by faith and grace, and Rome teaches that salvation is by works. That's that's not true. That's a false understanding. Rome teaches grace. They'll teach grace. You need grace to be saved, of course. But here's the difference. Rome teaches grace. That God's grace infuses human works and that there's a joint cooperation that then brings about our redemption. There's this cooperative effort between us and God through His grace and our faith that then bring about our conversion and that's not grace. And so the, the reformers came along and they said the key distinction is one single word alone. That's the difference. That one word made all the difference. It's not grace-infused human merit or works that brings conversion. It's grace alone without any human merit. If God saves us in spite of our sin, it's only because it pleases Him to do that, not because we did anything to achieve it. This is grace. We see this all throughout scriptures. And let me just quickly just survey a few passages with you that really define the fact that salvation is by grace alone. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. None of those disciples did anything to merit God's grace or Jesus selected them. He chose them entirely. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who loved first? Not us. We didn't take any steps. God is the one who initiated this through His sovereign grace. Philippians 1.29 says, It's been granted for Christ's sake to you not only to believe but to suffer. Listen, God has granted belief. So in our understanding of sola gratia, we have to understand that God supplies not only the grace, but listen, the faith also. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see very clearly the role of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in response to our situation, but all done in grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, say that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why why did God choose you? We believe in sovereign election here. We believe in in God's sovereign design to elect and choose who He wants to save. And He say, why does He save some and not others? Why does He elect some and not others? It's because of His grace. You say, that's not fair. 
Oh, really? You want to go there? You want to go there? It's not fair. I'm so glad God is not fair. Aren't you? If God was fair, none of us would be sitting here. Every single one of us would find ourselves upon death in hell. Don't you dare say, I want God to be fair. I don't want God to be fair with us. Because if He's fair, we get what we deserve. It's because He's gracious that we get what we don't deserve. Ephesians 1, why did God send Christ? Verses 7 and 8 say, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Do you understand that in Christ, God has lavished His grace upon you? It's all God. It's all grace. His Spirit. What, what does the Spirit have to do with our salvation? Listen, if the Spirit of God did not regenerate you and cause you to be born again, according to John 3, you'd still be dead in your sins and you wouldn't be headed to the kingdom of heaven. That's what Christ told Nicodemus. You need the Spirit of God to regenerate your heart. Well, what did you do to get that? Nothing. It's all grace. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul writes about our horrible condition, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, we lived in the lusts of our flesh, we indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. Do you understand that was your condition and that's my condition? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that's still your condition. You're a child of Satan. You love your fleshly lust. You're living according to the ways of this world. You're doing all that your fleshly mind can conceive of. And because of that, you are a child of God's wrath. And is it any wonder then that the next verse says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Do you see it? That's sola gratia. It's all grace. So who took the initiative in your salvation? God did. Who took the initiative in electing you? God did. Who did the initiative in redeeming you? God did. Who did the initiative in in regenerating you? God did. Who does the electing? Who does the saving? Who does the redeeming? Who does the sealing? God does it all. And so we have to understand this. And the reason we have to understand this, listen, is because I still think that today there's not been a complete reformation in many cases within the Protestant church. Here's what I mean by that. We still think that it's the grace of God that saves us, but somehow this grace has to be coupled with something I do to get saved. I'll tell you how it normally comes out. You share the gospel with someone, and you tell them, well, you need to make a decision for Christ. You need to, you need to pray the prayer. You need to do this. You need to, you need to make a decision. Really? I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Do you? Show me one place where it says you need to make a decision to, to Christ. No, the Bible says you repent of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the emphasis that we have in many of our evangelistic efforts and training today, it has something more in common with a sales technique than it does the Scriptures. The idea is that God brings us part of the way along the path of salvation and then leaves the rest of it up to us. God does His part, we do our part, and then we meet in the middle and we're saved. Someone has decided or defined it this way, Satan votes against you, God votes for you, and you cast the deciding vote. Really? That's not sola gratia. And added to that is the fact that many people's understanding of election is this, that God looks down the corridor of time and He sees who's going to have faith in the gospel and come to faith in Christ, and then God sees who that is, He rewinds the tape and says, okay, that's the one I'm choosing. And if that's your concept of election, can I just be clear? It's wrong. It's wrong. That's not... That's not divine sovereignty. That's not sovereign grace. 
God doesn't look down the corridor of time and, and base his election upon those who choose him. That's backwards. That's man-centered gospel. It's not grace. And so even today within our circles, even within evangelicalism today, there, there is a false understanding of grace. There's this concept that God does his part and I do my part. And so I think what's happened today is instead of amazing grace, we've got boring grace. If that's the case, if, if it's me choosing God and then he choosing me, or if it's me just making a decision, I can pat myself on the back about a great decision I made, then that's, that's great, great. That's boring grace. What's there to be excited about? How can you sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, if that's your concept of grace? How have we gotten to this point? How have we gotten to this point that in the church today, people are pumped up and excited about sports and pumped up and excited about their jobs and their careers and and their children's accomplishments, and their portfolio, and their investments, and how much money they have, and how big their house is, and the new car. How have we gotten to a point in the church where people love that and are more excited about that than grace? Well, that's the introduction. Romans chapter 5 has a lot to say about this. And as I was thinking about how do I preach on sola gratia, I was looking at all kinds of texts, Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 and Titus 2, and looking at, and I thought, you know what? God in His providence has us in one of the most grace-saturated texts of the Bible. We've been going through Romans. We're in Romans chapter 5. We've, we left off last week at Romans 5 verse 14, and as you begin to read verses 15 to 17, you see that the whole foundation of that text is laced with grace. So, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep going. Don't you love how God does that? I didn't plan that. God in His infinite grace has, has us in a text where we can behold the glories of grace. It's Romans 5, verses 15 to 17. Let me just quickly remind you where we're at. This is the tale of two Adams. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, is taking us through the tale of two Adams. The first Adam, whose one act of disobedience has led the human race into sin and death and corruption. And then there's a second Adam, Christ, whose one act of obedience has led us into life and justification and forgiveness. Two men, two acts to radically different results. Let me read the text, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification." For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Tremendous passage. You remember that in verse 12, Paul begins his argument by describing the effect of Adam's one act of disobedience. 
Verse 12 says, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so you would think now at this point, Paul's going to break it off and go and talk about what Christ did, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that till verse 18. He gets sidetracked in verses 13 and 14, and he talks more about the effect of Adam's sin upon us. So he says in verse 13, nevertheless... I'm sorry, verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So he's describing here Adam's sin, Adam's one act, the results of that sin, death, condemnation, corruption, judgment that goes to all people who are in the line of Adam, which is everybody. It's a pretty sobering text. It's pretty sad. Sin and death have spread to every single person. But as we saw last week, there's a glimmer of hope at the end of verse 14. Adam, who is a type of of him who was to come. Adam is a prefigurement of Christ. Adam is a foreshadowing of Christ. Adam is a picture, an illustration. In a sense, there's a a parallel that exists between Adam and Christ. And we looked at some of those last week. They're both men. They both lived on this earth. They both had human bodies. They both were under the law. They both died. We said last week that the key part of the similarity between Adam and Christ is that they both affected a number of people by their one act. Adam's one act of sin brought to those who were his the consequences of that, and Christ's act of obedience brought to those who are his the wonderful blessings and consequences of that. That's the similarity. But as we come to verse 15, Paul wants us to understand that there are some massive differences. That you cannot assume that Adam and Christ are exactly parallel in every way. They're not. Because there are some massive differences and some incredible disparity that exists between Adam and between Christ. And that's what Paul is going to focus on here now in verses 15 to 17. And he wants us to understand that in Adam, there's sin and death, and in Christ, there's grace. And I'm telling you, this, this is where our salvation begins to take on a whole different, glorious flavor. It's here in this text where grace begins to take on a whole new meaning, and it's in this place in Romans chapter 5 where sola gratia begins to display itself. And I want you to see it. I want you to see that despite your connection to Adam and his disobedience through your own sin and your upcoming death, that grace supersedes that and stretches far beyond Adam's sin. So I want you to notice a few things. Let's just, let's just be good Bible students for a moment. Let's notice some things. I want you to notice in verses 15 to 17 that the word grace occurs three times. It occurs twice in verse 15. It occurs once in verse 17. It's grace, grace, grace. Now skip down to verses 20 and 21. Twice the word grace appears here. Grace abounded all the more. Verse 20, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's grace. What triumphs over sin and death? Grace does. I want you to notice also that in verses 15 to 17, the word gift occurs five times. Verse 15, for the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift, by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to the many, the gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift 
of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul's trying to emphasize something here? Do you think he wants us to understand that grace is a gift? It's a gift. And a gift is something freely given. My wife has recently asked our children for their Christmas lists. And so they've been diligently working over the last few weeks on their Christmas lists, and they're getting longer and longer and longer. And I'm noticing something as the kids get older every year, they're getting more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. 14-year-olds, you just can't give crayons and coloring books to 14-year-olds. It just doesn't work. But there are kids, and we love them dearly, and so what, 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 we just want to give them gifts, within reason, but we want to give them gifts. And we don't base whether they get the gift on how well they behave or what they do or whether they meet our standards. It's a gift. That's what salvation is. It's a gift. And a gift you don't work for. And a gift you don't earn. And a gift you don't merit. And a gift you don't do anything to accomplish. It's a gift. I want you to notice one other thing before we actually dive into this. I want you to notice in verse 15, there's a phrase, much more. And I want you to notice in verse 17 that that same phrase, much more, also occurs. So I want you to understand that what Paul is talking about here is though Adam's sin brought death and corruption and condemnation, there is a gift of grace that supersedes that in a much more way, in a much greater way that is far superior to anything that Adam did for us in his one act of disobedience. The gift of God's grace in Christ more than compensates for what God or what Adam did for us in his act of rebellion. Friends, this text has sola gratia right in the heart of it. And if you're going to understand sola gratia, you need to understand the contrast between Adam and Christ. There are massive differences. And so for the next few minutes, this is a long introduction with a short message, as I say before. Let me give you three contrasts that highlight God's grace and salvation. Three contrasts that highlight God's grace in our salvation. I want you to notice the first one's in verse 15, the second one's in verse 16, and the third one is in verse 17. Let's look at the first one, which highlights God's grace. Number one, Christ's work is superior to Adam's work. Christ's work is superior to Adam's work. Look at verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. So here he goes. He's going to describe the differences between the gift of God's grace and the transgression of Adam. There's a key difference between them. What is it? Verse 15, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Notice as he says, one transgression brought death for everybody. Except two men, Enoch and Elijah, who walked with God, but the rest, all since Adam, have died. But notice the contrast, verse 15. Much more, however, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Despite our horrible condition, despite our, our massive corruption being in Adam's seed, despite all of that, despite our solidarity with Adam, Christ brings us grace. Grace. Look in verse 15. He talks about the word gift and the word grace, and the word gift, and the word grace. I mean, he can't say it more emphatically that what you have in Christ is all grace and all a gift. And do you realize that Paul is talking here not just about common grace? You understand the difference between common grace and sovereign grace? You need to understand the difference between those two. 
Common grace is the grace that all people enjoy simply by being alive. You have food, you have clothes, you have shelter, you have relationships, you have marriage, you have family, you have safety. Everybody gets to enjoy that. That's common grace for every single person, believer or unbeliever. You don't have to be saved to experience God's common grace. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about sovereign grace. Grace that elects, grace that saves, grace that redeems, grace that purchases from sin. And that grace, listen, that grace is based on love. It's based on love. You're saved not simply because you're the recipient of God's common grace. You are saved because you have been loved loved. You're not just a statistic. You're not just a number. You're not just a kind of this entity out there. You are someone who has been graciously saved and delivered from your connection with Adam through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't do anything to work for that. There's nothing you did to accomplish that. There's nothing you did to merit that. Nothing in you moved God's hand to in His grace, set His affections upon you in love. I just read it a few minutes ago in Ephesians chapter 1. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons to the Lord Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. What motivated God's choice of you? Listen, nothing in you. It was all love in Him that chose you out of the rest to receive God's unmerited favor. That's what sola gratia is all about. Sovereign grace. I want you to notice as well in verse 15 how it comes to you. Notice the end of verse 15. It says, this gift of grace abounds to the many. It abounds. You you don't just get a little thimble full of God's grace and He kind of pours it out and all that. That's all you get. No, He lavishes it. He unleashes the fountains of heaven of grace and pours it mightily upon you. This is not simple or small or limited grace. This is abounding grace, overflowing grace, superabundant grace that comes to you, and you get all of the blessings that come with that, you get all the joy that comes with that, and it's not just salvation. You get union with Christ. You get a new mind. You have a new future. You have a new hope. You have forgiveness. You have adoption into God's family. You have a full inheritance of what is Christ is now yours. Do you understand that? Abundant overflowing, sovereign, electing grace, which God has done in you and through you so that He gets all the glory. That's the first contrast. There's a second contrast. Christ's justification is greater than Adam's condemnation. Christ's justification is greater than Adam's condemnation. You can see it in verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Notice again our solidarity with Adam. What what happens if we're in Adam? Verse 16 says, we have judgment that arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. What's your future in Adam? Corruption, judgment, condemnation. You're the defendant who hears the judge say guilty and your sentence is death. This is your future without Christ. Judgment, corruption, condemnation. But look at verse 16. 
strong adversative, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. We've defined that term all the way through here. What's justification? It is the declaration of righteousness. It is a declaration of you being perfect, not because you are, but because an alien righteousness has been credited to your account through Jesus Christ. That's what you receive in Christ. And I want you to notice something. This is very, very important. Look at verse 16. Through one transgression came condemnation and judgment, and yet from many transgressions came justification. What is that? Think about this. Paul is saying here that one single sin brought condemnation. Just one. That one little taste, that one little bite of the fruit in the garden, garden brought condemnation. There were no second chances. They didn't get a, another opportunity to try it again. They, they were kicked out of the garden, and forever, every single person since Adam has experienced that judgment and that condemnation for one sin. In fact, listen to this. If somehow Adam could have never, ever sinned after that one sin, he would still be guilty and would still bring condemnation and wrath upon all of his progeny. Just one. Now, here's what's shocking. Wouldn't you think then that in the response to many transgressions, the wrath would be greater and the condemnation would be worse and the judgment would be far greater if there was just one condom or one act of judgment, one disobedience that brought about that judgment, what would many transgressions and many acts of disobedience do? Wouldn't you think that in light of what he says about the one act of disobedience, that there would then come much more judgment and wrath? It's not what he says. What does he say in verse 16? He says, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Why? Because of grace. Do you, do you see that God in His infinite justice could have poured out more and more and more wrath upon us? Because of the many transgressions all have committed and we have committed, and yet God in His mercy and His infinite grace chose to shower His kindness upon us. It's all Him. He took the initiative, and that's sola gratia. Last, verse 17, number three. The third contrast is that Christ's life is victorious over Adam's death. Christ's life is victorious over Adam's death. Look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, death reigns. Because of your association with Adam, because of your parallel relationship with Adam, because of your solidarity with Adam, death reigns. Death is king. Death is sovereign. Death is the ruler. Death is that horrible tyrant that will come to all of us and rule over us. And yet, verse 17 says much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. You get grace and you get a gift of righteousness credited to your account by God's kindness so that, as verse 17 says, the result is you can now have life reigning in you and through you. What a transformation. You were once under the, as a dying victim, under a ruthless ruler of death, and now under Christ, we are those who become rulers in the kingdom of life. Huh. Boring grace? 
Seriously? Boring grace? You move from death and be under his tyrannical rule, and in place of that, because of grace, you get to rule in life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 says that one day we will come and we will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We who once were subject to death will one day, because of grace, rule in life. Absolutely tremendous. Friends, this is what sola gratia is about. Your salvation is wholly and entirely a gift of God to you. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't accomplish it. You did absolutely nothing. The only thing you did is repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ, and that's not even a work. You did absolutely nothing. You just responded to the grace of God drawing you to Himself, sovereign grace, free, triumphant, and overflowing grace. Does the Reformation matter? You better believe it matters. And it matters because that and that alone can provide the assurance that your heart is desperately looking for. So praise God that our salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we have barely scratched the surface. We have barely glimpsed into the wonders of what you've done in saving us. Oh Lord, let us never take for granted what you have accomplished. Let us never think lightly of what you've accomplished. Let us never think lightly of your kindness and grace that has led us to repentance. Oh Father, let us rejoice. Because of what Christ has done, because of your lavish grace that has been poured upon us, all we can do is say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this abundant gift which you've given to us. Lord, if there's any today who have not received this gift, would you draw them to yourself? Would you save them? Would you bring them to saving faith in Christ? And would you let them today come to know this glorious, glorious grace? It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.